we look to the education sector to solve or we know we need it to better solve some of our human capital challenges as a country, but we forget that we also have a human capital challenge in education. We have a real challenge right now of getting um, folks into the education industry, of encouraging the smartest uh, students, the smartest in our uh, country to teach. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Welcome to another edition of Reality Check. I'm your host, Jeannie Allen, and I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host, Michael Musante. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, We want to thank our sponsor for today's podcast. This episode of Reality Check is brought to you by our friends at Edmentum. Edmentum is a provider of adaptive curriculum, research-based assessments, and educational services educators love. At Edmentum, their goal is to make personalized learning an achievable reality in every classroom. And what's really exciting about having Edmentum on board, uh, their CEO, Jamie Candy, is not only a good friend of ours at CER, but I know of Learn Launch. And today, our guest on Reality Check is Jane Swift, the Executive Director of Learn Launch. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. I'm so glad you made that connection, Jeannie, because I was just going to say that not only is Jamie a good friend, she's going to be doing one of the keynotes at our upcoming conference. So we're excited uh, to get Jamie. We had to get somebody from Minnesota to think it was a good idea to come to Boston in January. <laughs> I know the feeling. Well, I am so glad we're going to be talking about not only Learn Launch, the Education Innovation Hub in Boston, which you've recently joined your conference on January 30th and 31st this year. Uh, for those of you who are interested, Learn Launch will be having their eighth annual Across the Boundaries conference at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston. It's this phenomenal gathering of all sorts of different unique people who come together across all of the typical divides and impediments that so many uh, people experience in the rest of the world. But in education innovation, Jane, aren't you pleased to say that we have lots of different diverse views on everything else coming together to support one uh, one thread, which is learners at all levels? You know what? Um, for a long time, it has been the case, and I, I think you'll agree that There are a lot of issues that are actually bipartisan, dare we say it, um, that you can get folks from a lot of different viewpoints to agree on on uh, all sides of the aisle. And that's one of the things we've tried to continue at Learn Launch is to get lots of different perspectives, lots of different viewpoints, lots of different sectors, uh, folks in uh, the teaching arena. So we get lots of educators, but also investors, entrepreneurs who can all uh, come and think about how do we improve teaching, how do we improve learning, how do we best serve learners at every uh, stage of the learning cycle. Well, and, you know, Michael Jane knows uh, from when she speaks, she was the lieutenant governor and then the governor of Massachusetts, uh, progressively leading the charge for changes in how the state not only treats education but women and uh, the balance of work and family integration. Um, It's great. Jane, actually, at the ripe old age of 36, was Massachusetts' (laughs) first women's governor. My gosh. 
unfortunately still the only woman to serve as governor. And uh, I tell folks this is actually my first more public role back in Massachusetts since leaving office when my twins uh, were just toddlers. And so uh, many folks in Massachusetts, as I'm doing this new work at Learn Launch, are pretty shocked to learn that those twins are now uh, in their first year of college. It's uh, sort of like watching a soap opera, which I'm dating myself, uh, where, you know, someone goes away and it, people feel like you come back two weeks later and the kids are all grown up, but uh, mine really did it over that whole 15-year period. Exactly. I, I think that was a Bewitched episode, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, prior to your being governor, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at the ripe old age of 25, you were elected to the Massachusetts State Senate where you quickly made your mark passing the Education Reform Act of 1993. Is that correct? That is correct. And actually, my experiences uh, passing ed reform are a lot of what I'm drawing on here, uh, back to what uh, Jeannie and I were talking about, bringing lots of folks together. Uh, the way we did ed reform in Massachusetts, I think, uh, has some good lessons for how you continue to drive change. Um, and I was lucky enough when I did become lieutenant governor, that we were implementing some of those most critical features. And I met with over 100 educators, folks who probably didn't vote for me, um, who probably would never vote for me, um, but who knew I was sincere in wanting to make sure that the implementation of that law was effective. And we just passed another law in Massachusetts um, with a significant investment in education, relying on what we do in innovation, but also on what teachers are doing in classrooms. And so I think it's really important that we bring the field together and that we uh, learn from what we did right. And frankly, um, some of the things we didn't get right in our last uh, ed reform go round to make sure that uh, we are able to close opportunity gaps for kids. Uh, one of the reasons I was focused on education, even though I was a 25-year-old state senator when I first went to the state house, is because I grew up in a blue-collar aging industrial city uh, without the best public schools, but my parents were really, really committed to their kids uh, doing well, and all of my uh, siblings and I were able to go on to really good colleges. But when we got there, we realized we weren't as well prepared as some of our peers. And I've worked hard ever since uh, to make sure that every child, whether it's in Massachusetts or around the country, has access uh, to opportunities to not only uh, gain admittance, to great learning opportunities after high school, uh, but to be able to have the kind of work opportunities that they uh, find are fulfilling to them. So pursue passion, pursue purpose. And that's actually one of our uh, big themes for the conference this year is how do we help kids do that, but then not just faults, right, purpose and passion, but give you the skills, ability, and pathways to be able to pursue it and be successful. You know, Jane, you and I have never talked about this, but as you just described your experience, uh, it's almost identical to mine, with the exception of my father would brag that he had just entered the middle class and was able to send us to these brand spanking new public schools in beautiful Allendale, New Jersey, and yet I got through school um, with lots of really great 
uh, letters next to my grades. But when I got to college, I felt so inadequate. And I used to wonder when I got to Washington later, you know, how is it that people who didn't have those supports you and I had then endure? And unfortunately, and this is one of the things that is why I came back to Learn Launch, Jeannie. I know you've worked for a long time to even the playing field, whether it's your charter schools or choice or uh, any number of opportunities. I've worked in the innovation sector trying to make sure that the tools available uh, to teachers uh, or parents are there regardless of ability to pay, uh, regardless of where you're born, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of how wealthy your parents are. Um, but as we know by looking at the data, that access to opportunity is still not evenly distributed, so we still have quite a bit of work to do, and it's something that I'm determined to keep um, working on because the kids I went to school with in North Adams who didn't have the same support from their parents that I did were just as smart as the kids at Trinity College. Um, They just weren't given the same access um, and the same advantages. And frankly, some of the schools that I sent my kids to, um, they studied alongside of kids who didn't have the same advantages uh, and the same sort of determination uh, that their parents um, sort of required them, I guess, in my girl's case, to have. And um, it is uh, not just a fairness issue. Our economy requires that we get the best out of every child. And Jane, yeah, as our economy continues to innovate and change, how would you define innovate, innovation when it comes to education? So um, I dev- define innovation. You know, folks use the word technology. I use innovation. I think um, technology is always innovative, but there are things that are innovative that aren't always technology, I guess would be one way to say it. But innovation is a way of doing things differently. And for me, innovation also has to be proven um, effective. And I think that one of the places, frankly, that there's room for improvement and one of the hard questions that we ask at Learn Launch and one of the places we push um, even on our friends in the innovation sectors, um, can you really demonstrate results? Does that actually really work? Does it work in every situation? Are there certain criteria under which that can be implemented with efficacy? Are there other cases where actually, if implemented incorrectly, it doesn't work? Um, actually, Jeannie, this is a place where Jamie Candy and I have had long conversations because even though she runs a for-profit education company, um, you probably have had this conversation with her as well. Um, she realizes that uh, there are certain times when you can implement a technology solution in a way that works for kids, and then other times where you should do something differently. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And you know, when you talk about data, it is something that uh, it's always surprising how much we do that we don't expect uh, the data to be our guide. You know, if you look back at some of the stuff we were just talking about, I mean, you know, your experience with the Education Reform Act, the 90s across the country were this fertile period for education reform, but yet, and we know what was working, but yet a quarter of a century later, because we see the data, we see where the upticks are, we see where the gaps are not closing. Of course, as you know, according to the recent Nations Report card, NAEP, 
progress has plateaued. And so that gives us, you know, this, this should be the wake up call. I say this all the time. I feel like, you know, we can't say it enough. And it's kind of like a broken record for those people who remember records. But I don't, right? But I don't know that people really hear it. We have data that says things are not working for for most kids, and then we have data that say there are these products and services and innovations that are. But somehow, like, why is that not always meeting itself to take off to the next level, like it would, let's say, in business? Well, I wish there were simple solutions. And by the way, this um, transcends just K through twelve, right? It's the case right. at early childhood. It's the case in workforce development certainly the case in post-secondary um, and higher ed. And I think a few things. Um, first of all, uh, change is hard, um, so we have to understand that. Secondly, there are um, regulatory and other hurdles that um, prevent change from happening quickly. And I often tell folks when I'm working in the private sector in education, and trying to move uh, folks who work either in the regulated education sector or trying to move public policy that, yes, it can be frustrating, but there also are good reasons sometimes um, that change comes slowly. So um, you, you have to balance your desire to just, you know, break every chair and change things quickly. You want to take the time to make sure that things are proven. But folks often don't follow the data because of the impact it has on adults when you're talking about K through 12 education. Um, that's number mm -hmm. one. Secondly, um, sometimes the conditions that are required for implementation don't exist uniformly um, across all conditions, right? And so making the investments, and that's not always just money, and often it's not just money. Um, time is a really rare commodity. Um, and so making the investments of time, of commitment, um, and of money uh, to have the conditions for success to do what the data implies. And then one of the ones I'm really focused on, human capital. Um, so we look to the education sector to solve or we know we need it to better solve some of our human capital challenges as a country, but we forget that we also have a human capital challenge in education. Um, I'm sure you've mm -hmm. seen the data. We have a real challenge right now of getting um, folks into the education industry, of encouraging the smartest uh, students, the smartest in our uh, country to teach. Um, and then in modernizing the programs that we give them uh, so that they also are being driven by data, by research, and the way that we train them uh, is also um, innovative and up to the minute in ways that learning science guides. So uh, I wish it was simple. I wish there was a magic wand, but I, I do believe when you bring people together of goodwill, uh, focused on the right issues, will make progress. We've done it here in Massachusetts and New England. You've seen it work in other places around the country. And we just have to have a greater sense of urgency uh, because the world is changing so quickly and the needs uh, for an educated workforce in order to keep up with the challenges 
both in the world of work, but also in our civil society, aren't getting any less. You know, you put your uh, finger on the pulse of something critical when you're talking about sort of the changes in human capital. I know Michael's chomping at the bit to talk about personalized learning, um, but before he, you know, kind of asks you a little bit about that and some of your new partnerships, I just have to ask you how maybe we can tackle the human capital challenge by engaging in more entrepreneurial solutions. By by that, I mean, and you probably have the same thing going on in your life, given where we are in life. There's all these young people around me in my personal and professional life who are educators or there are other um, jo- they have other jobs and they're worried about you know, their kids and going back to work and leaving their kids with people. And I'm like, why don't we do some entrepreneurial things so that you can work as much as you want or as little as you want and still be an educator. You can make a lot of money and still be a principal because you're allowed to do something else on the side. Like I'm making this up what it looks like, but but every innovative way to work in every other industry doesn't seem to apply in particular to education and other social entities. So um, I think that there has been some good attention given to that, but I do think we need to double down and focus on educators. Um, My oldest daughter is uh, a brilliant math brain, and she also has a really unique and special gift with children, and she's studying to be a middle school math teacher, bless her heart. Um, But the thing that kills me are the number of people who come up to me and say, oh my gosh, Elizabeth is so smart and so gifted. Why would you ever let her be a teacher? Mm. That's exactly why I'm so proud she will be a teacher. Um, But I've also, even Elizabeth has started to hear these messages, right? And she says to me, Mom, do you think I'm wasting my life to be a teacher? And I often say to folks, can you remember who was the governor of your state when you were in eighth grade? And most people cannot, but they do know who their eighth grade math teacher was. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Gaston Caperton. (laughs) (laughs) West Virginia, so we're geeks, but most people don't know. No, no, I hear you, I hear you. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that what I want is Elizabeth also to be able to say, I'm going to continue to say in this for the reward, but also I'm going to be rewarded. No matter, you know, because I am doing this and I'm devoting myself and just the way in other fields, we pay people for skills and responsibilities and then we, we break out of this one uh, dimensional, you show up, you teach, you go home. Well, and I, you know, we don't have enough time here, but I also had her come an intern at Learn Launch where she saw a lot of interesting things that you can do uh, when you're a math teacher and you can go for a while and help develop innovative programs or help the folks at MIT who are studying middle school math programs and making sure that those are more effective or even just work in the summer with the folks at, you know, MIT Open Learning uh, so that the work that they're doing to figure out what works works better. There's a a real um, advantage sometime and, and a reward to just working with super smart people Um, And I have been talking to some of my more innovative friends in the private sector about why aren't you hiring these, you know, education majors as summer interns instead of hiring all these business majors? You know, they Mm -hmm. are committed to education. And by the way, you're going to want to sell them your products in a couple of years. So uh, there's a lot of work we can do. Just uh, real quick, you had earlier discussed regulations, government, and I often will rail as well. Uh, but you have uh, spun off two partnerships from Learn Launch, the Maple Consortium, which is the Massachusetts Personalized Learning EdTech, 
which sounds like uh, you are working in a public-private partnership with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to move learning systems to personalized learning. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we're also uh, working with them as well as with a foundation partner to think about how to help districts purchase innovative uh, tools better as well. So um, I actually think you find, if you approach these public-private partnerships appropriately, um, that there's lots of opportunities to work collaboratively, uh, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country. You have great leaders at the state level who recognize that the pace of change requires them to do things differently. And as long as you enter into these conversations in a way that recognizes uh, the different pressures on different parties, I think, frankly, that crafting more public-private partnerships to help bridge uh, the different demands and meet the needs uh, of educators, of the workforce, of the public sector leaders who are uh, challenged to keep pace with the speed of some of the changes that are happening in the private sector is actually where we're going to find some of the best solutions. And so this whole issue around public-private partnerships where we have done a few, but I believe in the future that will be one of the things that Learn Launch will lead much more uh, out front with. Well, and to your earlier point, it's people of goodwill, right? I mean, a lot of people forget we landed on the moon. That was a public-private partnership. That was the government and the private sector getting together to really push something that, that changed all of humanity, right? So at the end of the well, day... It, it's fascinating that all the people who complain about having um, companies engaged uh, or working in schools, um, I think have forgotten that I don't know. Uh, I mean, there are many pl places kids don't get to school um, on a bus without working with a for-profit partner. Exactly. Um, in many cases, uh, kids don't eat uh, during the day in a school without having a for-profit uh, partner. They you know, never read a textbook uh, without having a for-profit partner. So we've always had these partnerships for some reason when uh, the partner has a, a digital component or is more innovative, that um, has the fear factor uh, just because of the unknown. But I think as we embrace uh, the rapidity of change in our society, you're seeing a lot of that move away and we're able to put together some of these more innovative and, frankly, partnerships that have to demonstrate outcomes. And I'm all in on that. You know, we should be held accountable. And if you enter these partnerships, you should expect to be held accountable. And we need to do a better job, Jane, I think you'd agree, of educating people in general, adults as well as young people, about what it means. What does for-profit mean? I, I get so tired of people like saying, you know, oh, they work for a nonprofit. Oh, that's a for-profit. Do you know what that means? It means you're paying taxes or you're basically not. But I still have to be accountable and I still actually have to demonstrate uh, success in either one of those areas. So one, you can put capital in, back into the industry or the other one, I can just suck it out running a nonprofit. And by the way, being having a nonprofit um, as I have for a long time, run, run one, doesn't make me any better. It really just depends on what your business is and whether you're successful. And I think we probably have to have that discussion more in school. Let me ask you a question. I know we, our time is running uh, out. We can't have 
any discussion about education today without realizing we are now talking in 2020, and uh, the presidential race is on, it has been, and the stuff we're talking about here is not feeling very bipartisan anymore. Do you have any words of wisdom for us or any forecasts about how we can deal with the coming months and make sure that these conversations go a little bit more focused on students and innovation? Well, first of all, uh, a lot of education policy, as you know, happens at the state level and at the local level. And the good news is, and this is really a strange phenomenon, I wish I could explain it better, but we have a lot of bipartisanship still happening in states. Uh, so a lot of states like Massachusetts that will vote overwhelmingly Democratic in the upcoming presidential race, no matter who becomes the Democratic nominee, have the most, Massachusetts has the most popular Republican governor. He's the most popular governor in America, and he's a Republican. So go figure. Um, so the good news is um, I think we can stay focused on the state level. I do think, and we'll talk about um, some of these upcoming issues I think in the post-secondary realm where there's a lot of issues and there's been a lot of pendulum shift um, over the last new, over this administration, um, whether or not we have a change in the White House, I think you'll see some shifts in the Congress. And um, what I always tell folks is in government, and this is not a partisan, this is uh, statement. This is just an observation. Think of shifts in policy between the parties or between opposing views as a pendulum. And the more that you see a pendulum swing in one direction on an issue, the more it's going to swing back in the other direction. And I think for folks who are looking at higher education, it would behoove them to keep that in mind. Um, there have been some very, um, some would say positive, some would say negative uh, occurrences in higher education policy in the last couple of years, I think that there's going to be a correction and it may be just as strong as uh, what we've seen in the other direction. And I think that is so uh, exciting and frankly aspirational and I so appreciate your sharing that with us and reminding us um, that really the vast majority of the great work being done uh, is uh, transcends some of those divides. And, and I would imagine you're going to be talking about that at the Learn Launch across all borders conference, across boundaries conference, and that people listening today may very well want to jump, um, jump in and join us. I'll be there as well in Boston, January 30th and 31st by checking out learnlaunch.com. Come out, meet Jane, meet Jamie Candy from Edmentum, meet all the other fabulous people who are so dynamic and thoughtful and open to uh, learning more. I'm going Absolutely. to I'm going to predict that I have the answer to this question, but it sounds like you're having an enormous amount of fun at Learn Launch. Will we ever see your name on a ballot again? <laughs> um, so I am having a lot of fun at Learn Launch, but I have to tell you, I have fun pretty much wherever I am. Um, I inher inherited that gene uh, from my mother, whose name is Jean. <laughs> That's awesome. Ah, there you That's go. awesome. Our guest today on Reality Check has been Jane Swift, President and Executive Director of Learn Launch, an EdTech innovation hub that connects innovators and in education to expand high-quality educational opportunities to learners in all levels. Again, be sure to check out Learn Launches Across the Boundaries Conference Look up Jane. Join us whether you're in Boston. Come visit us at Reality Check in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Jeannie Allen. And I'm Michael Musante.
Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.